Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. He, uh, he's going to take my job very soon. Uh, just, just let me work for a little bit longer. That's all I ask. But Jack, Jack's awesome. Um, well, yeah, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into one verse. Let's pray. Father, uh, what a verse. That in the beginning, you, you created everything. And so you created us. We're, we're objects of your creation. And so we, we want to now pause and think about that together. And so you, God, you spoke us into existence, and now we're, we're turning around, and we're, we want to we know you as our creator. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember the first time a, a friend of mine lost their faith, stopped believing in Christ. It was a jarring moment because we went to church together, and, and then suddenly on Facebook, that he just had a very different view of the world than the last time I had spoken to him. He wasn't a Christian. He was, he was gone. And that was jarring to me because I had many of, the same, many of the same questions that he had, many of the same doubts that he had. And, and even though he was on another side of faith than I was, his questions resonated with me. His doubts resonated with me. And I know many, like all of us in here have had similar experiences, whether you're, you're at school and, and you're talking about believing in God at school or whether it's like a coworker of yours just finds the idea of God or the supernatural um, ridiculous, whether it's a family member who's left the faith, a friend who's given up on Jesus. Um, all of us have had that, and that's hard enough. But what often happens is not just that we, we see people with those experiences, but it begins to put pressure on us in our own belief, in our own faith. And we begin to wonder, like, is, is what I'm believing, is it true? Right? Am I duped? Like, are they right? Right? Are their doubts right? Are their questions legitimate? And into all of those questions that we all have, the Bible makes this just like thunderous entrance into the conversation. In the beginning, God. The most fundamental truth of the world, the thing that like defines every experience you will ever have in life. What animates every second of your day, everything you experience, according to Genesis 1-1, is God. In the beginning, God. So what does that mean? I guess like we probably all heard that phrase, whether you grew up in church or, or didn't. That's a, the first sentence of the Bible. is a pretty well-known sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and, and the earth. So what, what does that mean? Because, listen, a lot of us... We bring agendas to Genesis 1, and we've got opinions about Genesis 1. And I, like, I just want to try to like, pause those for a minute and say, well, okay, those are important. But like, what, what is Mo, like, the author of Genesis 1-1, who I think is Moses, what, what's he trying to say? When he decides to start what becomes the scriptures for us, what, what, when he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, what does he mean? What's he trying to say? And so what I want to do this morning, I want to start, I just want to press into that, that one verse uh, that doesn't mean, a sh- like one verse doesn't mean short sermon, just to be, and I mean, you feel like you know that by now, right? So you, you have proper expectations. But like one verse, uh, what does it mean? And then three, I think three implications from that verse for us. So in the beginning, God, what does that mean? Well, the first word uh, in the Hebrew is in the beginning, and it's, it's a word that's announcing it's something new. So the most common use of this word is when it's talking about the reign of a new king. So in the beginning of the, of the reign of King Tim, for example, 
right, in the beginning. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something new, right? It's something has stopped and something new has begun. And so already in this first world, there's this, this first word, this, there's this assumption that like this whole universe that you and I are a part of, that we exist in, like there was something else before that. There was, there was someone else or some other things before us. We, like we're in the beginning of something new, right? There, we're, there's something new that's been introduced to an already uh, existence, There was something before us. So what was it? And that's verse 2, or the second word. So in the beginning, God. The the Hebrew word is is the word Elohim. Um, And and our English translation, God, capital G, that's an okay translation. It gets us about 90% of the way um, there. But like anytime you do translation from one language to another, right? Go back to your high school days of when you were like, you know, half awake, and at least for me, a foreign language class, right? There's never like an exact word to word translation. Like there's always like most of the ideas captured, but not quite all of it. And so that, that's sort of what's happening here with the Hebrew word Elohim to our English translation, God. It's like it's like 90% of the way there, but it's not 100% of the way there. And I want to talk about like the 10% gap. So the Hebrew word uh, Elohim, it's, it's not a personal name, right? So when you, we hear in the beginning, God, capital G, we think like, well, in the beginning, like God, that's a name. But Elohim wasn't a name. There was a name for the, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and, and, but that's not what's here. It's the, the word Elohim. It's the more general term. So, for example, like my name is Tim. That's the personal address, and I'm a human. Um, that's the general uh, like reference of what I am. Uh, and, and so Elohim is more the general reference to, to God than a, personal, than a personal name. And so if you were to like go through all the Hebrew occurrences of the word Elohim, what you'd find is that, that often they refer, that, like, they refer to the God of the Bible, like the God of, that creates. Um, secondly, it's often used of, of gods of other religions, gods of other nations, um, of, of other faiths, and things that are attached to idols. Uh, thirdly, there's this really interesting story where this guy named Saul, he, he goes to a spirit medium, and he wants to call up this dead guy named Samuel, and, and so he goes to the spirit you know, it says, call, I want to talk to Samuel, call him up, he's dead. So the spirit medium calls up Samuel, Samuel comes up, uh, and, and, and he's called an Elohim. So a dead human being who is present in spirit is called an Elohim. And so if you, like, if you take all of this, the, what this word means, uh, here's how I would define what Elohim is in the Hebrew sense. The 100% translation, which, you know, wouldn't be interesting if you translated every word like this. But an Elohim, all an Elohim is, is a being who's an inhabitant of the spiritual realm. And in the Bible, there is more than one Elohim. There's many Elohim. There's many inhabitants of the spiritual realm. And the best example, or one example of that, is later in Genesis 1, uh, 14, where, uh, where God's creating the sun, the moon, and the stars. And here's, here's what's written. Uh, and God, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, that's, that's the moon, and the stars. Now, what's interesting here is that we're told that the stars, or the, the lights, the stars, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, the sun, they're, they're actually, like, they're signs, which in the Hebrew, like a sign is something that is, it points to a reality that's beyond, um, it, that's beyond its, itself. And so the stars, the moon, the sun, they, they point to a reality that's, that's beyond themselves, right? They're, they're a pointer to something, they're a sign 
to something. And the reason that's important is because in this day, everyone that Israel was around believed in many gods, believed in many Elohim. And many of those people worshipped the stars as gods. The sun was a god, the moon was a god. And you go through ancient Near Eastern literature, that's all, everyone thought the moon was a god. Everyone thought the sun, the stars were a god. And so Genesis 1 is sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, it's like nodding its head in that direction. This, this recognition that many people saw the stars, moon, and suns as, as gods. And so this actually, this is all through the Bible, um, in the, the Hebrew Bible. And so Job 38, uh, at the end of the book of Job, God is speaking. And as he's speaking, reflecting on creation, uh, he says this about the stars. So that creation, uh, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, all the sons of Elohim shouted for, for joy. And so what's happening, like Hebrew poetry works in parallel. So line one is, is that the, the morning stars sang for joy. Line two is the sons of Elohim. And so stars were connected with, with the Elohim, with supernatural beings. And, and this wouldn't have been surprising to anyone in this day. It weirds us a little bit out, right? We're like, well, there's only one Elohim. There's only one God. And yet... The Bible has room for lots of supernatural beings, lots of beings and, 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 and uh, inhabitants of a realm that we're not visible to. And so why, why does this matter? Why is this important? Why am I going here, right? Other than the fact that this is super interesting to me, at least. Um, and it's, it's this, is that when Moses writes, in the beginning, Elohim, he's saying a lot. Because a lot of, everyone who heard that would have said, well, which Elohim created Right? Was it the sun? Was it the moon? Was it the stars? Was it the rain god? Like, which Elohim created? Because every other culture had lots of stories of the gods created, the Elohim creating the world. And they would fight each other. One of my favorite stories is two gods fought. One god died, and the, their dead body became the earth. So, you know, we're walking on a carcass. Like, that's the story of their creation uh, uh, narrative. But there's always, well, there's always disagreement. There's always violence. There's always war. There's always the gods duking it out amongst each other, but not in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 has, in the beginning, Elohim, an inhabitant of the spiritual realm, created the heavens and the earth. One God created everything. And then you read through the rest of Genesis 1, and this, this Elohim isn't fighting with the other Elohim. It's, this God speaks and the, the sun exists. He speaks, and the moon exists. He speaks, and the star, and God said, let there be light. Right? And God said, let there, there be animals. Right? He speaks. There's no opposition. There's no war. There's no, just like, it's just one God creates everything unopposed. And that's why throughout the, the, the Bible, the primary command you're given in the, in the Hebrew Bible is don't worship other gods. Don't worship other Elohim. There's only one. There aren't many, there's only one. And there's lots of questions that, that raises, but what, what Israel was always tempted to do was they moved into a land named Canaan. In Canaan, there was a god named Baal, and Baal was, the thought, the thought was Baal, like, controlled the rain. So if you're a farmer and you need rain, you have to go to Baal. That's the, you have to go talk to him. Right? You have to pray to that god, because he'll give you the rain. And Moses is saying, no, you don't have to, there, no, there's only one god. There's only one creator. If, if uh, in Egypt they worshipped the sun as their primary god, Ray, and Moses saying, no, this other, this god of Genesis 1 created the sun. It's a lesser light. It's a sign that points, it's not actually a god, it's a sign that points beyond itself. And so this, this is what uh, Moses is doing in Genesis 1-1 is he is, he is being as confrontational to his own culture as that, were, that verse is to us in our culture. 
Right? In a world that says, you know, we don't need God to explain existence, and the idea that there's supernatural is kind of ridiculous, they equally were like, well, there's lots of gods, and there's lots of beings, and there's lots of, of, of things that you can worship. Moses is saying, no, there's one. And to us, who's like, there's nothing, he says, no, there's one. There's one creator, God, one Elohim, who's above all. So he's saying a lot in verse 1. And I, like, I, I, could, I could go for another hour on everything I just said. He's saying a lot there. So what does it mean? What are the implications for us as we think about living in our day? Like taking for granted there was one God who made literally everything in existence, unopposed, without opposition. What does that mean? I'm going to think out three implications for us together. The first is that we are, we are haunted. Now, the next, uh, you know, the next implication, I'm going to say, like, there's lots of similarities, actually, between what Moses is saying to these people in Genesis 1 and what, uh, what we need to hear today. But there is one point of major dissimilarity, which is they believed in a universe, people who first were around for Genesis 1, they believed in a universe with, like, lots of Elohim, lots of supernatural beings. We have a hard time getting to one supernatural being, that there's one God in in the universe. And I want, to, I want to meditate on that together as a congregation. That question, why is belief in God today so difficult? Right? Why, if you went to work tomorrow and they like, well, how did the universe get here? And you told them Genesis 1-1, you have a lot of people who just look at you like you're weird. But it wasn't always like that. In fact, we're like, this has been a major shift. And, and so there was a a philosopher named Charles Taylor who wrote a book uh, called A Secular Age. And in that book, he posed this question, which we've posed before on a Sunday morning, but it's like we need to continually think about this as a church and mission in the world. This was the question he asked that was his whole book, 900 pages. Uh, This, why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God uh, in, say, 500 in our Western society? while in 2000, today, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. So his, his question isn't, like, why don't people believe in God anymore? His question is, like, if you lived 500 years ago, the thought that there was no God, like, wouldn't even be a possibility for you. You wouldn't even consider that. But today, it's not, not only, like, do we consider that. Like, continually around us, we have all sorts of pressure points pressuring in on us. There isn't a God. Like, there, you know, there's another, you know, Jesus 1-1's not true. Like, we're constantly pressured in, in that direction. And, 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 this massive cultural shift hasn't just meant that less people believe in God today, which is just it's a true statement, but also means you and I as Christians, we're continually operating in a culture in which belief in God is pushed back against. And so uh, James K. A. Smith, he's a, a, an author, he wrote a book that was a summary of Charles Taylor books. So Charles Taylor book, Secular Age, 900 pages. James K. Smith wrote a book, 140 pages, that was a summary of this book. You can guess which book I read. Right, it's Smith's book, and it's, it's really good. And, and he makes this point about you and I, if you're a believer in God, this is how Smith describes that experience for you and I today. It says, faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. And what he's saying is if you confess Genesis 1, 1 is true, which I do, that belief is continually contested at all times in our world, in our culture, which means you and I are, unlike 500 years ago, we are well acquainted with arguments for why like, God might not exist. Right? We see those posts on Facebook. We're in, we're in those conversations. And Smith says what that means for us who are believers, we are haunted with the sense of doubt. Like We doubt while we believe. 
And like, that sounds super uh, depressing if it stops there. But what, what's, what Taylor goes on to say is it's not just we as Christians who are really, like we're pushed against in terms of our belief in God, but people who don't believe in God, they're just as haunted as, as we are. It's hard to walk away from Genesis 1-1 and not be haunted by the sense that, that there's something more here. And if you, if you listen to me, I mean, really listen to music. If you really watch movies, like you see these things come out, the sense that I don't believe in God and yet I'm haunted by the sense that there's something here. Right, one, a couple examples. One, uh, Bonnie Iver's, uh, he's a critically acclaimed songwriter. He, he released an album called God a couple of years ago. And I mean, it's sort of a meditation on, you know, belief in supernatural and death and all these things. And in one song, a song called Over Soon, uh, Over Soon he's, he's meditating on his death in light of God. And, and th- these are the lyrics. It says, There I find you marked in constellation. Right, very Genesis 1, the stars point beyond themselves. Like, I look at the stars, there's a God. There isn't a ceiling in our garden. garden. And then I draw an ear on you so I can speak into the silence. Right? So there's a sense that, like, the stars point to something beyond God, and yet there's silence. His unbelief is haunted by doubt that maybe he's wrong. Maybe our garden doesn't have a ceiling. I mean, that's one example. Another is uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, a, a novel. Um, and, and The Road, it's a, it's a super depressing book. Um, if you've ever read it, it's actually our weather right now corresponds very perfectly with the book itself. Because it's like a dystopian world, apocalyptic world. Everything's falling apart. It's always cold. It's always gray. Uh, everyone's miserable. It's like it's it's what's happening to us right now, right? It's this is the world we're living in right now. Maybe maybe the road is what we're living in. I don't know. But and so the the, the novel meditates on this question, like it, if everything's just like hard and sad and cold, like is there meaning? Is there hope? I mean, that's the question. And for like most of the book, you're convinced there is not hope, right? It's not coming. But there's this moment towards the end of the novel that, that it's all about a child and his father. Right? They're, they're trying to go find where it's warm. They're trying to, to go to the south where they think there's hope. And the father, one of the you know, most famous lines from the book, the father's meditating on this meaningless existence to him. And he says this as he's looking at his son. He knew, that his, that, uh, he knew only that his child was his warrant. And he said, if he is not the word of God, God never spoke. But in a... In a universe where it's really hard to find meaning, you look at a child and you're like, there's, more, there's something more here, right? We're not, like, that's the, that's the haunting, that's the doubt. And I don't know if McCarthy believes in God or not. My hunch is he doesn't. But he has a sense, I look at a child and there must be a God, right? If, if, if this is not the word of God, God never, never spoke. And so in this, in this new age, like, we're, Christians are continually haunted by doubts that is, like, is what I believe true, but on the flip, those who do not believe are continually haunted by the sense of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what do we do with this haunting? And I would say that I look upward. Now, last Sunday, we did uh, like a bit of a dreaming session with our, uh, with the, our new building and thinking about what, you know, how do we transition that from uh, planet hoo-ha, as people affectionately call it, to uh, like a worship space. Right, to a place of, of worship. And, uh, you know, our architect uh, asked a very architect question to me, which is like, Tim, you know, when you're experiencing God, what's that like? Explain that to me in, in images. And someone who has, you know, never thinks about feelings is like, I don't, what do I, but I started thinking about this. And uh, it's like anytime I've had an encounter with God, typically what happens is like my, my horizon gets wide, like I look up, actually. 
right? And no one else in the room resonated with this at all, so I don't know why I'm sharing this with you. But, uh, but like, there was this sense of, like, like, I'm looking up when I connect with, with God. And I th- that's why I think the Bible invests so much energy in saying, look at the moon and the stars, right? Look at creation. Don't get centered in on yourself. Like, look out. When you look out, like, when you see a child, when you see a sunset, when you see the moon, the stars, the sky, like, it's, you're haunted, right? There's something here. They're signs. They point beyond themselves. And yeah, like everything in our culture encourages us, us to look down, right? At a screen, at, uh, at ourselves, make ourselves the center of our universe. And that's why doubt, doubt is so much harder when you're looking up than when you're looking down. Because in the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. And you look out and you look at just like a, look at it, just look at a tree. I mean, the miracle of a tree, the miracle of, a, of another human being, a child, Look out, and, it's, and you're just haunted by the sense that Genesis 1-1-2 is the most believable sentence in the universe. So we're haunted, um, so look upward. Two is we are, we're confronted. <clears throat> and without question, one of the, the greatest things we have today is, even though I just knocked on screens, uh, is YouTube. Because YouTube can convince you that you can do anything, right? Like YouTube makes, you, like YouTube makes me into a master plumber. And so a few, it was like a year ago or so, we had a, a, one of our toilet was leaking outside of, uh, you know, underneath the, the seal. And so I, you know, I was like, I gotta, I'm going to fix this, right? And so I, I Google it, I figure out what's wrong, and, uh, you know, I look at how do, you, how do you stop a leaky toilet, and I figured out the tools I need. I go, I get them, I'm, I'm ready to go, I, I shut the water off, I get the toilet off of the, you know, off the floor, and I'm like, this is, this is great. And I know all I've got to do now is remove the flange from the floor, and put a new one on, because that's, that's the broken part, put a new flange on the floor. And so I, I go to start trying to remove uh, the flange from the floor, and, and about five hours later, I called a plumber to come and finish, because I could not get, I don't know, how do you get a flange off of the floor? I have no idea. Uh, but like YouTube, can, I mean, I watch a guy on YouTube do it, and it's like, you know, you just unscrew this thing, and you just do that, and you pull it off. It's like, dude, that's not working for me. It's not happening. And, and so like YouTube, it convinces, I can, I can do anything, right? Or I look at something, I can do any, um, anything. And I, listen, this is a weird translation, or weird transition, so just come with me, uh, or at least try to come with me. Uh, but, like, truly one of the greatest fears I have as a pastor is that you will try to, like, do-it-yourself spirituality. You will YouTube your spirituality. And I think that's, like, that's one of Moses' primary concerns here in Genesis 1-1, is that you'll look out at this world, infused with supernatural, like, meaning, and instead of, like, seeking one God who made the heavens and the earth, who made everything, you'll, you'll just grab what you need from where you, you need it. And so, in that day, Baal was the rain god. And if you needed rain, you had to go to Baal. That was the Elohim you would, you would go to. If you needed sunlight, you would go to Ray. Like, that's the, that's the Egyptian god. You would go to that Elohim. If you, right, it's whatever you needed, you just go to that god, you grab from that god, you pray to that. You, and, and that's why the Bible invests so much time in saying, no other gods before me. There's none. You don't need any more. And even though, again, like we're not, my guess is none of us will be tempted later today to go to another God, another religion, to seek something um, that, we, that we need. But the, the, the tendency they had to grab what they needed from where they wanted runs just as strong in us today as it ever did in the Genesis 1-1 world. It's a find, uh, uh, you know, our, or our take isn't that we, you know, we go to many different gods. We have just, we've rejected all authority um, all authority structures, right? So if you want to find a meaningful life, you're not like you're not going to ask your parents. That's like you're not going to you're not going to look at a, at a school. You're not going to look at a religion. You're not going to look at a church. You're not going to look at a, a, a pastor. All of those authority figures 
are gone. We look within. Right? Meaning for my life comes what I want it to be. I define it for myself. We don't look upward. We look inward. And Moses was afraid that the, like, his, the people of God would see all of the options available to them spiritually, and they would just, you know, I need this now, and I need that. I don't like this. I'm going to keep that. I'm not going to believe that, but I'm going to, I'm going to grab this um, and, instead and, and just pick and choose a spiritual experience depending on the moment and what they needed. And I think there's no greater description of what religion is in America today than that. I'll listen to this person over here, and I'll believe this over there, and I don't like this, so I'm not going to listen to this. And it, like we're, we do it ourselves. I think that's, that probably explained my religious experience um, until, probably until I was in college. I was trying to think about this. Like, when, did I, when did I understand I can't do this with God? Right? Like, there's something in the Bible I don't like. I have to believe it anyway. And I think, I think it was in, in college. Um, and a part of my college experience, I, was, uh, I did this honors project around kind of the, the American like, political experience in the church in the book of, of Isaiah. And don't worry, we're not going into that this morning. Um, but, uh, but what I found so interesting is that my, like, my professor and mentor had a very different politics than I had when I was in, in college. And yet he, never, like, he was never interested in believe, you know, believe this politics or, or you know, listen to this politician. It was always, what is, what is Isaiah saying about God? And, and then work that out into your, into your understanding of what that means for you. What is, the, what is the Bible saying about God? How is God revealing himself um, to you? And, and that, that's a very different take on religion and spirituality than what I think most people have, which is if I like something, I'm going to believe it, and if I don't like something, I'm not going to believe it. And my time with Dr. Kirk, uh, my mentor, it was, I was reminded of this because I was listening to another to a podcast, another pastor who was reflecting on an experience with his mentor who told him this at one point, which I, I think is a word we need to hear, which is, he told him this, be careful of believing what you want to believe. Be careful of believing what you want to believe. Because like, if, if you know God from a Genesis 1-1 frame, you can't do that. Right? Like you can't encounter the God who created the heavens and the earth unopposed, speaking all of existence into the into or speaking all of this world into existence. You like you can't have an opinion that's different than him, right? You can't say, Well, you, God, you said this, and this is in the scriptures, but you know, I, I believe this. It's like this just doesn't work. And C.S. Lewis, he he brings this out. He uh, he says this about about this idea. Like you, you have to you have to encounter the creator God. Lewis says, uh, in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, and therefore you know no, uh, yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. So how, like, how do we prevent that? How do we prevent this do-it-yourself spirituality? Well, if you're, like, the way you deal with your haunting is look up, right? Look out at creation. Um, the way to deal with the confrontation of God is to, to look around in community. Don't be your own authority. Listen and look to people who, who know God, live with him, are submitted to him. Recognize that all of us, every single person in this room, me included, are all going to want to just believe what we want to believe and push away the things that are hard. We all have that tendency in us, which is why we need community, so that people will, can look us in the eye and say, God isn't like that. Right? God did not reveal himself 
as that. And we want to be that community, right? That's, that's who we want to be as, as a church. And yet one of the things that's just so surprised me as a pastor is how, how little people seem to be interested in having hard conversations about difficult theological truths. Like we all just, we already have opinions, we already have our conclusions, and we don't want to talk about them. And, and Genesis 1-1 just paints a very different picture of a God who is creator, who speaks truth over us, and we receive it or we reject it, and we often want to, reject, we often want to leave it behind. <clears throat> and so look around, right? Be in community. And yet, if that's all we are, right, if we're just a church that's like confronting with hard truth and always talking about what's hard, you know, hard to believe, then that's not a very fun place to be, right? And, and there are churches like that, right? They're, they're not very fun. Um, to be around. In Genesis 1, uh, it does, the, the Bible storyline in Genesis 1 doesn't stop there, right? It continues on. And so we're not just confronted, we're not just haunted, but, but I think most importantly, Genesis 1, the narrative of our creation is that we are, we are known. It was, I was in, uh, when I was in high school, I spent a week in, in rural Arizona. And one of the things that I remember from that time, because we were you know, a long way from city, rural Arizona, was, was the night skies, was the stars, Right, no artificial light. Um, you could see millions of stars. It was a powerful thing, and I, I remember looking up at the sky, and, and I mean, sensing like sort of what Genesis one says, which is, "Gosh, I'm so small. I'm so insignificant." I look up at this like reality, and it's a world, or it's a realm. It, it points to something beyond itself, right? If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it's like a similar experience. Like, how, is this even real? What I'm looking at. And so my, like my reaction, and this is often our reactions when we look at the moon, and the stars. It's like, "Gosh, I'm so small. I'm so insignificant. I don't." I don't, um, I don't matter. And yet Psalm 8, what we read earlier, says the exact opposite of that. So Psalm 8, it's a meditation on Genesis 1. And the psalmist, as he's, as he's thinking about creation, probably looking at creation, he says, when I look at your heavens, uh, the, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is a human being that you're mindful of them? Right? Look at the stars. Human beings, they're insignificant. They don't matter. Um, and yet... Yet, God, you've made human beings a little lower than the heavenly beings, than the Elohim, right? What the stars point to. You've made human beings a little lower than that, but you crown them with glory and honor. Here's what the psalmist is saying. is When you, when you look at like our, our physical existence as human beings, we are not impressive, right? As one theologian uh, put it, we're, we're puny little dirtbacks, right? We're, we're weak. We're fragile. We're easily broken. When you compare us to like the stars, the, the potentially the realm that they're pointing to beyond, like a, a realm we can't see, like just in physical comparisons, we're not much. But what, what the next line says is not, yes, that's right. God made uh, human beings to be worthless. No, God made human beings just a little lower than the Elohim, but then crowned, him, crowned them with glory and honor, actually raised them above the, the Elo, Elohim. We're actually we are more important in God's scheme of creation than anything the stars, the moon, the sun point to. Right? We are crowned with glory. We are crowned with honor. When you look at the moon and the stars, like the reflection should not be, I'm insignificant and I don't matter. It should be, I have been crowned as a human being with glory and honor. The stars do not equal the value that God has placed on you by making you. The, the, the moon and the night sky do not, do not hold a candle to the value and dignity God has created in every human being. But that raises the obvious question, like, what happened to us? It's like, go on Twitter, you know, it's like, I don't, crowned with honor and dignity, I'm not sure about that. Or like, the way we speak to each other with our politics, the way 
Um, you know, we drive sometimes. The, the, human beings dig me out, like, really? And yet this Genesis 1 theme, it doesn't just stop at, at Psalm 8. It continues on into the New Testament. And then John 1, one of Jesus' closest friends, his brother, his, his buddy John, um, he's reflecting on Jesus in Genesis 1, and he, he writes this at the beginning of, of his narrative of Jesus' life. Um, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Right? John, John clearly thinking Jesus was there in creation. But then he continues on a few verses later, and he says of Jesus, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Did you, like, the creator of the universe right, puts on human flesh. He enters into our existence, and we didn't receive him. Right, his own creation, because we were doing it ourselves. We had figured out God without God. We would figured out life without uh, the creator. We figured out creation without the one who put us all here. And so when he showed up, we, we, we pushed him away. And yet this creator God who made literally everything with his voice, speaking it into existence, who's the most powerful being in the universe, wants wants to give, you, give us back the, the dignity, the honor, the crown that we, we lost. He wants to give it back to call us his own children, to call us his own sons, his own daughters. And ultimately, like, do your own spirituality. You know, I'm going to believe this because this sounds right, and I'm going to believe what I want, and I'm going to live how... Like that, you'll never get to a place of honor and dignity if that is how you live. You'll only become more smaller, more self-centered, less interesting. Don't do this. Encounter this God on his terms. Seek this God on his terms. Let this God confront you and name you as his child.